John chapter 19, please. John 19. Let's look to the Lord and pray. Gracious Father, we thank you today that we can come together, that we can sing about the old rugged cross <coughs> and realize, Father God, that it's because of that day, because of that cross, because of that sacrifice that we can have salvation. We do pray that today as we look into the crucifixion, that Lord, you would just bless our time Give us wisdom from on high. Use me, Father God, to your glory. Enable me, Father, to have clarity of thought and help me as I speak to bring glory to your name. Use this time, we pray, to be a blessing to us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you know, today is Good Friday. And uh, it is a good day for all of us who know Jesus Christ as Savior because of that day some 2,000 years ago, Christ died to purchase our salvation. And so you and I as believers can indeed call today a good day. But you know, 2,000 years ago, things did not look so good. And as you come to John chapter 19, we see just how bleak things seemed, particularly to those watching on. Christ has been arrested as we come to John 19, and he's been brought before Pilate. And Christ is now standing in Pilate's judgment hall. Pilate knows that he has an innocent man in his charge. Barabbas has been brought forth and he has been offered along with Christ and Barabbas has been chosen. Look back in chapter 18. But you have a custom that I should release unto you one at the at Passover. Will you therefore that I release unto you the king of the Jews? And cried they all again saying, Not this man but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. So Barabbas has been released in the place of Christ. And the Jews are now crying for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. What was Pilate to do? Release him? I mean, after all, he has in his presence an innocent man. What he should do is release him, but that's not what he does. Pilate pronounces a sentence of death on an innocent man. And that's where we pick up the story in John chapter 19. Note with me, first of all, the mocking in John 19, verses 1 to 16. Pilate, he makes some mistakes. Instead of releasing Jesus Christ, the first thing he does is he orders him to be scourged. In verse 1, Then Pilate therefore took Jesus and scourged him. Now remember, Pilate's already declared Jesus Christ not guilty. Look at verse 38 of chapter 18. Pilate saith unto him, What is truth? And he, said, and he had said this, He went out again unto the Jews, and saith unto him, I find no fault in him at all. Pilate's already declared him innocent. He's declared him not guilty. I find no fault in him at all. And yet now he orders him to be scourged, to be beaten with that cat of nine tails. And so to scourge him was totally unjustified. This is a gross injustice that he commits against an innocent man. Now perhaps in Pilate's mind he thought that in doing this he in some way, some bizarre way, was helping Jesus. 
that somehow if he beats him and makes him look unrecognizable, maybe the mob would be satisfied uh, with the scourging and would therefore be willing to let Pilate release him. That they'd be happy with the mocking and they would let Pilate release him. But their hearts were hard. And they were determined to have Christ put to death. Look at verse 6. And the chief priests therefore and officers saw him. They cried out saying, crucify him, crucify him. They wanted blood. They wanted Christ to be dead. Their hearts were so hardened. Their hearts were so bitter towards the Lord that it didn't matter what Pilate did. They wanted Christ dead. The second mistake that Pilate makes is that Pilate wrongfully permitted the soldiers to mock Christ. Look in verse 2. And the soldiers plaited a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put on him a purple robe. He's innocent. He scourged him, and now he delivers him unto the Roman soldiers to mock him, and he allows his soldiers to mock the king of glory, to mock him with a, with a, with a mock crown a robe and a scepter, as it says there in verse 2. They plaited a crown of thorns and put it on his head and they put on him a purple robe. The crown of thorns that they placed upon the Lord's head here was uh, probably came from what was called the local date palm tree. In fact, if you look at some ancient Roman coins, you'd find the emperors of Rome wearing such a wreath or such a crown that appeared to radiate glory upon the heads of the kings. However, that same palm branch, that same local date palm tree that produces these wonderful crowns that were seen on the emperors of Rome, when they're turned the other way around, you find that the fronds of the branches now face inward rather than outward. When they put them on the emperor, they faced outward. When they put them on Christ, they faced inward. And that, those painful spikes then would cut into the flesh. That's the crown they put upon his head, this crown of thorns, and they put it into the head of Jesus Christ. The reddish-purple garment they put upon him, perhaps a trooper's coat, was an obvious attempt to mock his claim of being king. Look in verse 3. And said, Hail, King of the Jews. Hail, King of the Jews. You know, vassal kings of that day, the kings of Rome, wore purple. And here is the mockery. They've got upon him a crown of thorns, the crown that's on the emperor turned inside out on his head, the purple robe they placed upon his shoulders. You see, the Roman soldiers viewed Christ as a pretender, as a fake pretender to the throne of Israel, and they despised him. And so they mocked him. But they did more than that. They also smote him. Look in verse 3 again. And said, Hail, King of the Jews. And they smote him with their hands. They smote him with their hands. The, the phrase there means they kept on giving him slaps from their hands across his head. They kept on beating on him. And after scourging him, and after allowing the soldiers to mock him, Pilate again announces he finds no fault in him. Look in verse 4. Pilate therefore went forth again and said to him, Behold, I bring him forth for you, that you may know that I find no fault in him. 
Once again, Pilate's convinced there's nothing to see here. Jesus Christ has done no wrong. But following this announcement, Pilate makes a third mistake. He should have released him now. He should have released him before the scourging, before the beatings, before the mocking, but he certainly should have released him now. But instead, Pilate presents Jesus to the people. Look in verse 5. Then came Jesus forth wearing the, purple, uh, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said unto him, Behold, the man. He brings the Lord forward. He brings Christ out onto the balcony. And he's wearing the crown of thorns. He's wearing the purple robe. His face is beaten beyond recognition. The appearance of Christ was gruesome. It was grotesque. He was bleeding. He was disfigured. Undoubtedly, roars of laughter were mingled with gasps of horror from the Jews watching on as they beheld the man who had done them nothing but good for the time he'd been here on earth. Isaiah's prophecy of Christ's repulsive appearance is now fulfilled. Go back to Isaiah 53, please. Isaiah 53. And verse 2 says this, For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as root out of dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He's beaten beyond recognition. And so Pilate's words here in verse uh, uh, 5 where he says, Behold the man, are significant words. Because as Pilate brings out the Lord with with this face that's been beaten, the crown of thorns causing the blood to roll down his face after he scourged him and he's had him mocked and he's standing there as this pretend king. The governor meant for them to behold the man, to look at the poor fellow whom they regarded as a rival king to Caesar, adding to the shame, adding to the mockery, but in an attempt to try and get the sympathy of the people. It's almost impossible to follow the details of this account in John chapter 19 without believing that Pilate hoped to stir them to pity. That Pilate hoped by all of his actions that people would see this awful sight of Christ standing there before him, all uh, beaten and bruised and looking uh, unrecognizable, that the sympathy of the hearts of the people would turn towards Christ and Pilate then would get his wish and be able to release with the innocent man. But there's no sympathy for Jesus, because look in verse 6. When the chief priests, therefore, and the officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate misjudged the capacity of the human heart for hatred. He misjudged the capacity of the human heart of the people out there to despise the Lord. This one who had done so much for them, is so despised, particularly by the religious leaders, uh, that they did not even look at the man who now looks so pitiful and just simply cried out, crucify him, crucify him. And now for the third time, Pilate pronounces Jesus Christ innocent. Look in verse 6. Pilate said to them, and crucify him. Why? for I find no fault in him. Now that's a remarkable statement. 
Pilate said, I found no fault in him, so I have him scourged and mocked. I find no fault in him, so I presented the people to receive the ridicule and the mockery and the demand to crucify him. And then he says, okay, well, you crucify him because I find no fault in him. Remarkable statements. In fact, what we find in Paul's reply is Paul's reply reflects to you and I the disgust that Paul has with the Jewish leaders. Remember, they brought Christ to Pilate. Pilate didn't go and arrest him. They brought Christ to Pilate for judgment, for him to make a decision as to whether he was guilty or innocent. He'd made that decision, and now they refused to accept his decision. No wonder Pilate's frustrated. No wonder he says, you take him and crucify him. Now they can't under Jewish law and under Roman law, but that's his... That's what he's demanding. Take him out, crucify him. Now until this point in the story, the Jewish leaders' objections about Christ have been political. That he is trying to usurp the authority of Caesar. And to that end, they've been stressing the political implications of Jesus' claims. But now sensing that they were not going to receive the desired outcome which was that he'd be put to death. With the approach that they'd made regarding his declaration of being a king, they shifted their emphasis. And the Jewish leaders now accused Jesus Christ of breaking the law of God for claiming to be God. Look in verse 7. Then they answered him, We have a law. By our law, he ought to die because he, he made himself the son of God. The pretense is over now. We see the real reason why they want him put to death, not because he said he was the king of the Jews, not because that usurped the authority of Caesar. They had no more love for Caesar and the Romans than anybody else in Israel did at that time. Well, they really despised and didn't like was the fact that Jesus Christ claimed to be God. No longer are they trying to overturn the decision because he claimed to be king of the Jews. No, because he claimed to be God. Unlike the sedition charge, this charge, though, was true. Christ did indeed claim to be God. Look in John chapter 5 and verse 18. John 5, 18. Verse 17 says, But Jesus answered them, My Father worketh hitherto, and I work. Therefore the Jews sought to, more to kill him, because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but he said also that God was his Father, making himself equal with God. This is a true claim. He had indeed many times claimed to be God, to be equal with God. And he had the credentials to prove it, didn't he? Think of his miracles. Think of his healing the sick, raising the dead, walking on water, calming the storm. He had the credentials to prove that what he said was true. But the crowd at this time is not interested in the truth. They simply wanted Christ to die. Bringing up the accusation that he claimed to be God was indeed 
uh, a direct, an indirect confession that the accusation of sedition was worthless, the accusation of sedition was false. The truth is, Pilate and Herod had both found him not guilty of the accusation of sedition. The Jews had originally brought the sedition charge against Christ because it was the charge that would bring certain death. It warranted the death penalty. Insurrection against the Romans guaranteed the death penalty in a Roman court. But now the Jewish leaders are desperate. So they bring the charge that he said he was the Son of God to try now to get the death sentence. Because the only one who can pronounce death upon Christ is Pilate. You know, through all of this, the most impressive fact is Jesus' silence. Look at verse 8. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he was more, the afra- more afraid. And he went again to the judgment hall and saith unto Jesus, Whence art thou? But Jesus gave him no answer. Then saith Pilate unto him, Speakest thou not unto me? Knowest thou not that I have power to crucify thee and have power to release thee? You know, the crown of thorns, the the mockery, the brutality did not bring any response from the Lord Jesus Christ, either of complaint or rebuke. And beloved, this is a silence of infinite and overwhelming love. Christ doesn't speak. Christ doesn't try to defend himself. doesn't try to overturn the verdict because he doesn't fight back because he loved you and he loved me. Isn't that what it says in Isaiah 53? Isaiah 53 and verse 1. Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness that when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And yet we did esteem him smitten, stricken of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes... We are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of his all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before his shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. He doesn't speak because he loves us. He could have called 10,000 angels to deliver him right here in Pilate's judgment hall. He could have called them at Calvary, but he didn't because he loved you and me. He was on a mission. He was about to accomplish the Father's will. He was about to walk out to Golgotha's hill, and there he was going to lay down his life to save you and me, to shed his blood that we might have forgiveness of sins. So he opened not his mouth because he loves us. But finally, he does speak in verse 11. And he says this, Jesus answered, Thou couldst have no power at all against me except 
were it given thee from above. Therefore he that delivered me unto thee hath the greatest sin. Here the Lord speaks. And Jesus reminds Pilate and reminds you and I that there was a higher power, higher authority at work there that day. And Pilate only had the authority to do what he was doing because God was letting him do it. Pilate was only allowed to have him mocked and beaten and scourged and then taken out and eventually crucified because this was the will of God for Christ. And Jesus Christ was going to lay down his life. No man was going to take it from him. Somebody else was in charge that day, a greater power. Because our salvation was unfolding even before Pilate. Pilate only had the authority because God gave it to him. Now in the mind of Pilate though, the higher authority over which Pilate uh, had to answer probably in Pilate's mind was Caesar. And because of this, he immediately sought to set a just man free and thereby avoid any trouble with the emperor over a breach of justice. Look in verse 12. And from thenceforth, Pilate sought to release him. The Jews cried out, saying, If you let this man go, thou art not Caesar's friend. Whosoever maketh himself king speaketh against Caesar. Pilate sought to release him. The word sought there indicates that Pilate made repeated attempts to release Christ. He gets into a fat, frantic mood here. He's afraid that word's going to get to Caesar that he is having an innocent man who's been found not guilty by Herod, been found not guilty by him. He's going to sentence this man to death. Christ has just challenged him and said there's a greater power at work. He's frantic now. And he's seeking to release him, finding every avenue he can to get himself out of the mess that he's got himself into. And he tries to have him set free. Pilate's convinced more than ever that Jesus is not guilty. And as much as Pilate tried to release him for fear of men, or rather the fear of men was greater than the fear of God. And so in verse 13, uh, verse 12, the end there says, If thou let this man go, thou art not Caesar's friend. Whosoever maketh himself a king, speaketh against Caesar. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus forth, sat down in the judgment seat, in a place that's called the pavement, but in the Hebrew, Gabbatha. He tries one last time to have him released in verse 14. And it was the preparation of the Passover and about the sixth hour and he saith unto the Jews, Behold your king. And again he fails in verse 15. But they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate saith unto them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. And that phrase there gives you an evidence of the hatred of religious leaders against Christ. They said, We have no king but Caesar. They didn't respect Caesar's authority but now they plead, out, plead that they have more respect for Caesar than they have for Christ. Now Pilate, for fear of men, offers an innocent man for crucifixion in verse 16. Then delivered he him therefore unto them to be crucified. And they took Jesus and they led him away. And so Christ leaves now for Calvary to die for you and me. So secondly, we see the crucifixion. 
in verse 17 to 30. You know, the common practice of those sentenced to die was for them to carry their cross down the Via del Rosa all the way up to Calvary's hill. And so Christ bears his own cross to the place of the skull. Golgotha, verse 17 tells us, and he bearing his cross went forth into a place called the place of the skull, which is called in the Hebrew Golgotha. This is the place of shame. This is the place where criminals are executed. It's outside the city walls. It's on the main route into the city where all the travelers coming into the city would pass by the cross and pass by Mount Calvary making their way into the city. Those leaving the city would pass by this way, pass by the cross, heading out of the city. It was a terrible place. And so it added to the shame and the suffering of Jesus Christ that day. And indeed, to add to that shame and suffering, he was crucified between two criminals, verse 18, where they crucified him and the two other with him on either side, one and Jesus in the midst. And like a criminal, Jesus Christ was required to wear the accusation that was made against him around his neck as he made his way from the judgment hall down the streets of Jerusalem, down the Via del Rosa, along the road up to Calvary, Around his neck he had to wear the accusation that was made against him and that accusation would then be nailed above his head upon the cross that it is for all criminals, stating why it is he is dying. And in verse 19 we see what Pilate wrote. And Pilate wrote a title and put it on, his, on the cross. And the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. He declared that he is the king of the Jews. This is what he's accused of. This is what he's dying for because he claimed to be the king of the Jews because Jesus Christ was the king of the Jews. Remember, the religious leaders wanted him to change it to say he claimed to be the king of the Jews. He says, I have written what I have written. A mob gathered to watch the suffering Christ in verse 20. This title then read, Many of the Jews, for the place where Jesus was crucified was nigh to the city, and it was written in Hebrew and Greek and Latin. Verse 21, and Then said the chief priests and the Jews to Pilate, Write not the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. The mobs gathered. They came to watch God's own son as he died for their sins. They don't know it yet. But he's dying for their sins. He's dying for the sins of the world. The mob has gathered to mock him, to ridicule him, to uh, rail upon him as he dies for sinners like them and us. Your crucifixion was one of the most cruel and shameful forms of death. And for that reason, it was reserved for the lowest kind of criminal. Edward says crucifixion was designed to produce a slow death with maximum pain and suffering. The combination of scourging and crucifixion made death on the cross brutal. Beyond the excruciating pain, the major effect of crucifixion was to inhibit normal breathing. And each effort to get a proper breath was agonizing and exhausting as the criminal would lift themselves up on the nails to be able to breathe, to inhale, and then lower down to exhale. 
The weight of the body, it said, pulling down on the arms and the shoulders, tended to fix the respiratory muscles in an inhalation state and hindered exhalation. I knew I'd get that word wrong. Okay? So because of the muscles fatigue, the lungs would uh, harden and you could not exhale and inhale properly. And death on the cross usually came from acute shock, from blood loss, from the nails and the hands and the feet. In John 19, 23 and 24, we read a common event at crucifixions. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts. For every soldier a part, and also his coat. Now the coat was without seam, woven from the top throughout. They said, therefore, among themselves, let us not rend it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which saith, they parted my raiment among them, and from a vesture they did cast lots. These things, therefore, the soldiers did. The fulfillment there is of Psalm 22, verse 18. Close by the cross, John stands with some women who had the courage to stand there that day with him. Verse 25 now there stood by the cross of Jesus' mother and his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Cleophas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciples standing by whom he loved, he saith unto the mother, Woman, behold thy son. And saith to her, then saith he to the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour that disciple took her unto his own home. They had the courage that day to stand. You know, as I read that passage again this week, I was thinking to myself, where would we be at the cross? If we were there in the first century, the day that Jesus Christ was crucified, would we have the courage to stand at the cross and identify with him? Or would we be with the other disciples, cowering, afraid somewhere else? And I wonder today, where do we stand regarding Calvary? Do we stand boldly and proudly to declare that we are the sons of God, that Jesus Christ is our Savior? Or are we ashamed to call his name? You know, we ought to be like these women and John, bold to stand up for the Lord. Christ is now full, in full control of the events taking place. And he says in verse 28, I thirst. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. He's in full control. He knows there is another prophecy that needs to be fulfilled. And he declares, I thirst. Ensuring that God's word is seen to be true. And ensuring another prophecy is fulfilled, one soldier standing by gives him some cheap vinegar wine to drink in verse 29. Now there was set a vessel full of vinegar and they filled a sponge with vinegar and put it upon hyssop and put it to his mouth. Then from the cross, Christ makes one of the greatest, if not the greatest, statements of all time. In verse 30, when Jesus therefore received the vinegar, he said, it is finished. He bowed his head and gave up the ghost. It is finished. They're wonderful words, beloved. The once for all sacrifice for salvation was now made. It was finished. 
The Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world is now dying as a sacrificial lamb for you and for me. It is finished. It's complete. The task which the Father sent the Son to accomplish, the redemption of mankind, the purchase of our salvation, the forgiveness of our sins is now complete. It is finished. The debt is paid in full. God has been satisfied. Salvation is one. As the songwriter says, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Hallelujah. It is finished. What a savior. He finished the work of salvation for you and for me upon the cross of Calvary. So all that you and I need to do to be saved is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, to place our faith and trust in Christ and His finished world in Calvary, and we shall be saved. The jailer said to Peter, to Paul and Silas, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? In Acts 16.31, the response was, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Praise God. Jesus died for you and for me. It is finished. The mocking, the crucifixion, now finally the burial. Verse 31 to verse 42. Some have questioned the reality of Christ's death. So evidence is given here to prove that Christ did indeed die. In verse 31 we read, The Jews, therefore, because it was the preparation that the body should not remain upon the cross, that's the preparation for the Passover, should not remain on the cross the Sabbath day, for their Sabbath was a high day, besought Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. Then the soldiers came and break the legs of the first and of the other which were crucified with him. Here we see that as we move on through this section, that Christ did indeed die. For if he did not die, as some suggest, that he simply was uh, in a trance, he swooned, and that the cold grave revived him, then there is no payment for sin, there is no salvation. For the payment of sin, the remission of sin is dependent upon the blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. Without the shedding of blood, there is no salvation. Without the shedding of blood, there is no satisfaction. God is not satisfied without the shedding of the blood. And if Christ did not die, if Christ Jesus was swooned in the tomb and revived again because of the coolness of the tomb, then Jesus didn't die. If he did not die, there is no salvation for you and for me. For Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That's the gospel message. And the first evidence that he did die is that the soldiers came to break the prisoner's leg to speed up the death, which is what we read in verses 31 and 32. They come to speed up the death of the people on the cross by breaking the legs. But when they get to Christ, what do they find? Verse 33, But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was dead already, they break not his legs. They saw that he was dead already. Did the soldiers get it wrong? Did they misidentify that he was dead already? Did they get it wrong? Well, there's no way they got it wrong. They'd attended many a crucifixion. They knew what they were doing. They identified that the man on the left and the man on the right were not dead, so they broke their legs, but they looked at Christ 
and they knew that he was dead, so they didn't break his legs. He died as our substitute on the cross of Calvary. Now, to make sure he was dead, one soldier pierced his side. Look in verse 34. But one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side, and forthwith came at their blood and water. And the coming forth of blood and water is a sure sign of death. Because as he pierced his side, he pierced the sack around the heart. And the blood and the water are indication that he was dead. Prophecy was fulfilled. And so as we read in verse 35, we read this, and he saw its bare record. This is the soldier who speared his side and the blood and water came forth. He bare record, and his record is true, and he knoweth that he saith true, that he might believe. For these things were done, that the scripture should be fulfilled. A bone of him shall not be broken. And again another scripture saith, they shall look upon him whom they have pierced. John's recording this, and he says, As I looked and I saw the spear enter his side, and the blood and the water come forth, I'm testifying to you that he indeed was dead. And that testimony is true. And for prophecy was fulfilled. Jesus did indeed die on the cross in our place to save us from our sins. The wage of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Today is Good Friday, beloved. And today is a good day for you and I who know the Savior. Today is a good day because we remember the day Christ died for sinners like you and me. Today is a good day because this is the day that Christ paid for our redemption. Today is a good day for it's the day that Christ finished, completed the work of salvation for you and me. Today is indeed Good Friday. It's a glorious day because Jesus died for us. He gave himself for us that we might be saved. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoso believed in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Christ died for our sins and his death means for all of us who believe that we have eternal life. He suffered the shame. He suffered the mocking. He paid the price of Calvary, paying for the penalty of sin on the cross with his blood to purchase our redemption. One last proof that he did die is found in verses 38 to 42, where the disciples take him and bury him. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, besought Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate therefore gave him leave he came therefore and took the body of Jesus. And there came also Nicodemus, which at the first came to Jesus by night and brought a mixture of myrrh and allies, about an hundred pound weight. Then took they the body of Jesus and wound him in linen clothes with the spices as the man of the Jews is to bury. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, the new sepulcher, wherein was never a man yet laid, there lay they Jesus, therefore, because of Jesus, the Jews' preparation day, for the sepulchre was nigh at hand. They took his body from the cross and they effectively embalmed it. He was dead. Jesus had died for you and me. Now, of course, that's not the end of the story. Because 
as any good story, the best is yet to come. And you'll have to come back Sunday to hear the end of the story. But the resurrection is the other part of the story. But praise God today for Calvary. This Easter, let's remember what happened 2,000 years ago on the cross of Calvary. There Jesus Christ shed his precious blood so that you and I might be saved. The knowledge of his sacrifice, beloved, those of us who are saved ought to move us to be willing to give of ourselves to live for him. You know, think about it. Nothing was too much for Christ to give for you and me that we might be saved. How much are we willing to sacrifice for him because he gave it all for us? And I wonder today, is he your saviour? Do you know the saviour? If you don't know the saviour, I trust today might be the day that you place your faith and trust in him and his finished work in Calvary and you'll be truly saved. Praise God. Today is a good day. Jesus died for our sins. It is finished. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you today for the privilege of being here. We thank you, Father God, for this wonderful truth that Jesus Christ died that we might be saved. Father, we thank you he suffered what he suffered in our place. We thank you, Father God, that he went all the way to Calvary. And there he cried, it is finished. Lord, he gave so much for us. May we be willing to give of ourselves for him. And if there's somebody here or watching online who's not saved, I trust, Father, that today you would speak to their hearts. And you'd bring them to the place whereby they would acknowledge their need of the Savior. And they'd be gloriously saved. Yes, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.